Father in heaven, we're thankful today we can study again. And you've said your way is in the sanctuary. You've said it's a central truth uh, to be studied and that harmonizes all the other truths. And we're thankful that we can again study it today. We ask that your spirit would join us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I would be like Jesus. Um, let me... All right, brother, is going to start us out here. Just... Let's see. Yeah. Earthly pleasures, no, a little higher. Earthly pleasures vain would call me. I would be like Jesus. Nothing worldly shall enthrall me. I would be like Jesus. Be like Jesus, this my song. In the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus all the way from earth to glory. I would be like Jesus telling o'er and o'er the story. I would be like Jesus. Be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus. We'll come back if you're going to sleep. We'll sing some more. Okay, we've looked this morning, we looked at, in the first time, we looked at the sanctuary and this generation. We saw that the major message of the Bible and the prophets and in the Psalms and everywhere else. Oh, by the way, if any of you, is this the first time you're here? If you haven't filled out a card, we're going to have a little drawing uh, for a sanctuary at the end of this lecture. Um, so if you haven't filled that out and you want to get it done, I'll pick it up at the end. Um, so... The sanctuary in this generation, the first generation, the Exodus generation now is what we're going to be talking about. And by the way, as you talk about generations in the Bible, as you study that text all the way through, there are some generations that God really got upset with. And the Exodus generation is one of those generations that God really was kind of upset with. In fact, I looked up, like I said, every single verse in the Bible about generations. (laughs) And multiple times... There is this reference to the generation of the Exodus where God was saying, I don't like what they did. And the reason he didn't like it is because here he drew near to them in the sanctuary experience. And even though he draws that near to them, you know, some people say, oh, if I only had a miracle. Oh, if I only had this happen. Oh, if I only had that happen, then I'd believe God. They had palpable miracles every day. They had seen miracles every day. And yet, what? they would always reject him. So he, he, he basically said, this generation will not go to Canaan. So he can be happy with a generation or not happy. And he wants to be happy with each generation. But that generation, there's a lot of things to be learned from that. So we're going to study that generation and hopefully not make the same mistakes today. So the Exodus generation. We've already prayed for those of you who have just come in, so you're going to have to pray on your own. <laughs> but we believe that our prayer covered you. The sanctuary and the Exodus generation. Oh, wait, minute Oh, I guess I'm just doing a little review. We talked about how in our first lecture, the main thing is the sanctuary message. It's the main point, the things we've spoken of. And then we also talked about the... Uh, um, Let me just make sure that this is not all the wrong document. We also talked about how the the main measure, oh, that's the wrong document. That's why it's not working out for us. Oh, yeah, this is the right one now. Oh, I forgot to show you this. This this was my church for for about 14 years. And there, when I first got there, there was no church there, none of these buildings, but they, we just met in this little room. Then, then this sanctuary was built by God's grace uh, during that time. But we brought out that lifestyle, life-size uh, model of the sanctuary you see from Oklahoma Academy. Can you see how many people, they just beat this path down 
as they went from place to place. And every person was given a basically a 55-minute Bible study. And from that, we had uh, six people right after that that went in a Bible study. Well, we had many, but six of those were baptized from that just one exhibit, only there for one week. So this is an evangelistic tool as well, uh, dealing with the sanctuary. And uh, there's a little closer up. And this was, the, this was the tent where they sold books. This is where they talked about the high priest garb. And then they just went uh, place by place. Here's someone giving a tour. And here's someone that was uh, cut off from the camp of Israel. <laughs> they were outside the gate. They, uh, this, was, this is actually a Jebusite. No. <laughs> all right. So there's the Jebusites, the Amalekites, and all the otherites. Um, okay, so we're going to talk now this time about the, uh, the Exodus sanctuary. So, this morning we said that the main point was the sanctuary message. And in our second time together, we looked at um, the sanctuary of the first generation. All right, the sanctuary during the Exodus. Now, in this lesson, what we're going to see is that God rescued his people from Egypt and he led them to his mountain sanctuary. You see, in the Bible, there's two mountains. There's the mountain of destruction, Armageddon. Har means mountain. Mageddon means destruction. So there's the mountain of destruction, and there's Mount Zion. And they were worshiping at a false mountain back then in Egypt. They were worshiping at the pyramids. <laughs> you know, they had all these false mountains around them. And what we're going to see is how God had victory over the false gods and mountains of Egypt and brought people to himself and to his mountain sanctuary. So the first sanctuary we saw in Scripture was this, the sanctuary in the Exodus, and the second was going to be this mountain sanctuary. Now, what situation were God's people in before they escaped? You all know. They were in what? Bonded, somewhat self-imposed in some ways, because they had also imbibed on the things in Egypt as well. And uh, let's uh, look at this text together, read it together with me on the screen. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. So they had these Hebrews there. And Hebrews, they called them the Hyksos and, uh, in, in the ancient documents. And they discovered that they may be leaving. And they didn't like that whole idea, so they wanted to enslave them. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them um, with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, uh, Pithom and Ramses. And you can see those, uh, those cities today. And you can also see a place that was evacuated through drainage and whatnot by someone who was called Moseph, who, who was called Joseph in the ancient documents. You can see actually where he reverted the Nile and was actually growing grain to get ready for that seven years of famine, which you can also see archaeologically they have discovered uh, where there was an actual seven year famine in Egypt. What did God's people do as a result of this bondage? Let me read this with me. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt, then the children of Israel, groaned because of the bondage, and they... Now you know that text right there. I'll just say, all the... Oh, thought maybe she was going to hide. All the way through the... uh, All the way through the... uh, Come out, come out, wherever you are. All the way through the scriptures, whenever you cry out, God hears you. Isn't that a good thing? And so they cried out, God hears them, and he hears their groanings. He remembers their covenant. Notice who he remembers their covenant with. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, who he's called before. So, the God of covenant hears them. Now, who did God send to deliver them? Of course, he sent Moses. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I mean, really, the question should be put to Moses. Who else is going to go? Right? I mean, the guy was just totally prepared for this. And uh, you're totally prepared where God's going to call you, too. And I think he is calling you some places. Uh, where exactly, I don't know. But I know it's not here. <laughs> I mean, it is for this weekend. Um, 
if you'd like to stay around here, I'm sure the conference wouldn't mind it because they're going to have a lot of leads after you go out and knock on people's doors tomorrow. They're kind of worried about that. But Matt's going to be here following all those leads up, right, with the people from Maplewood. You don't know. Well, that's maybe not then. What were they uh, not allowed to do? Or not were they not being allowed to do? Let's look up a text together to keep ourselves awake. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 and 5. What were they not being allowed to do? Now, this is an interesting text, of course, in the book of Exodus. X means out. Odas means the metered, measured way out, where we get the word odometer. So in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast, a shikag, literally, to me in the wilderness. And the Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I may, should obey his voice to let, and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert. Sacrifice to the Lord our God. In other words... Have a sanctuary service, basically. And he will tell us, uh, um, test uh, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. And then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and an heirs, why do you take the people away from their, what's it say? Work. Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them what? rest from their labor. That word rest is Shabbat. You make them Sabbath day. You're taking them out for a Sabbath day. We can't have that. More bricks, more straw, more mortar. So here you have this appeal to not only go worship, but worship on the Sabbath day, a rest day, if you will. Does that sound like sanctuary imagery to you? Yes. And so that was the situation. So God's solution, because of the pollution, was for the dilution. In other words, he said, look, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. you got to get out of there. And, of course, he had foretold that this would happen. And right to the day, 430 years to the day, they were going to leave Egypt. And like I said, the word exodus is made up of those two words, ex meaning exit or get out. We have ex right here. I mean, the room is filled with exodus imagery. And odas, which means the metered, measured way, odometer. Right. God wanted to lead any who would follow him out of, out of uh, Egypt step by step. You know, he doesn't jerk people out. God's not a jerk. And he doesn't jerk people out. But he leads them step by step. You know, if you're working with somebody in a Bible study, you don't say, Hello, my name's Don, and we'd like to baptize you and have you be a member of the Adventist Church. Because that's not the right step. Uh, if you do that, they're going to take a step. A couple steps back. And so God was going to lead his people step by step. What ten things did God do to get them out and why? Look at this. It's interesting. Exodus twelve twelve. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. How many times did he execute judgment against the gods of Egypt? Ten. Ten plagues. Now, there were more gods. There were 80 or 90 gods, but he chose ten, the top ten. Give me top ten. Top ten gods. Any gods. Top ten gods on the board. And he went, man, I'm going to go after those gods. I'm going to demonstrate how ridiculous those gods are. You know? Ten. Now, why did he do that? Because Numbers 33, 4 says this, For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the God, God had killed among them, and also their gods, whom the Lord executed judgment. Now, I wanted to get to the uh, uh, Numbers 33, 4. Um, oh, this was not what I was thinking about. In Numbers, there's another text. Let me see if I can find it for you. That This triggered my mind, and so I want to just put it on for the tape. In Numbers, um, look at Numbers chapter 14. <laughs> Threw me off by looking at Numbers 33. Numbers chapter 14, verse 20 and through 22. Um, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Can you say hallelujah to that? Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not heeded my voice. The number ten is always a key number 
Ten commandments to show a complete obedience to God. Ten times rejecting God shows complete disobedience to God. You, and, you know, if you break one, you break them all. But in the Exodus, they, they left, but they ultimately were successful. That was the text I was thinking of, and I just wanted to say it for those listening on the tape. Now back to our slides. So, against the gods of Egypt, there's this judgment passed. All their different gods. And they had all kinds of gods. Have you ever studied the gods of Egypt? We don't usually teach about them at GYC. But these are fascinating gods. I mean, they're like gods that are like not around anymore because they didn't work out so well. But we're going to look at a couple of them. The Egyptians were a very polytheistic society. They worshipped over 80 gods. The plagues were judgments against the gods of Egypt. And by looking at the cognitive distortions or the distorted views of God, uh, he was going to demonstrate something about himself. For instance, they worshipped the river. How many of you have ever been tempted? Down by the river, you just say, man, almighty river, I worship you. Well, they worshipped the river. They believed that the Nile was the bloodstream of Osiris, the god. So they said, this is the blood of God. So they would go down and bathe in the river, and they thought that was bathing in the blood of God. Now, you look at, the, you look at an aerial photo today of the Nile Valley, and guess what? The Nile, by the which way, would it, which way does it flow? North. Good. And you look as it flows north towards the, the, the uh, delta there. It's just a, a winding stream of green. And you can see how they've maximized that. And you can see why they would say, man, this is something else. I mean, if they're not next to the Nile, <laughs> then they were, they were burning, they were roasting. So they begin to worship the river. So God says, uh, all right, you're worshiping the river. What am I going to do? He took the river and turned it into what they said it was. What did they say it was? The bloodstream of God. So he turns it into the bloodstream of God because he did it. And they go, ooh. And pretty soon there was blood everywhere. And they go, ooh. I guess what we believed is not so good after all. And God is not this God, but another God who turned it into blood. And he was trying to teach them, you're not saved by the Nile, you're saved by the blood of the Lamb. So he clears up that cognitive distortion. Have you ever met someone in Bible studies that have a bunch of cognitive distortions? Usually it's people that have studied the Bible a lot. They're even harder to study with than someone who's never studied it. You know, because they got some contagions. I thought some guy came came and talked to me not so long ago, actually here at GYC. He had this uh, very interesting idea that was, frankly, not correct. And I said... Very gently, I didn't want to say it too directly, but I said, well, I don't know. I, I, I think about this. I think about that. And he just kept coming back and coming back. And about 30 minutes later, I said, you know what, brother? I, 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 we, we need to just pray about this for a while. And, but it's hard to dislodge something, right? You're probably thinking that about me, too. Maybe you think I've got some problems, too, right? Not just that guy. This guy up here, too. But when we get this error, and this is what God did, he came down and he says, i got to dramatically dislodge that. Well... So he dislodges that, but they're worshiping the frogs. How many of you have ever been tempted? You know what really tempted them was the pollywogs. Not so much the frogs. But the pollywogs turned into frogs. And they said, oh, whoa, procreation. Lots of ancient cultures would worship the act of procreation. Even in this culture today, we're kind of tempted with that. So they would worship this act of procreation. They see the frogs and the pollywogs and all that. They go, whoa, got to worship that. That's the future. And so they worship that. So God said, well, by the way, the, the frog was, God's name was, uh, it's a short name, four-letter word here. I don't know how to say it. Hect was a, four, was a frog-headed goddess of fertility. And uh, she was believed to be the wife of the creator of the world. I think, you know, God's the creator. He wouldn't be happy with this, right? It was a capital offense for an Egyptian to kill a frog. No, kill a frog. They had, they had things. I've read some of their books like The Frog Jumped Over the Moon. You know, we talk about the cow jumping over the moon. They talk about the frog jumping over the moon. Ribbit. You know, Kermit the Frog was really big back then. And they worshipped the frogs. So God says, all right, you worship the frogs. And God should be everywhere. He should be omnipresent. So let's make the frogs omnipresent. So the frogs went everywhere. Man. And then all of a sudden, what did they say? Uh, Frogs were in the kneading bowls. They were in the microwaves. They were in the toaster oven. They were everywhere. And they said... All right, that's enough. It's in my fax machine. And they said, forget it. We don't believe this anymore. Then all the frogs, they said, kill the frogs, get rid of them. And they took them out by heaps. Can you see what that happened to the mind, how they believed in God, how that would have changed that? You know, when, when Emperor Hirohito of Japan had to go on the air and announce to the Japanese that they had lost the war, 
It was a huge strike to the religious life of Japan because he was seen as God. And they've never quite recovered from that. And it's years later. Interesting. Then they worship the bugs. Like you look at their sarcophagi. And you can see they have the scabbard beetles and all these different things. And they'd worship these bugs. And they would have them in strategic places. I don't want any bug in any strategic place on my body, really, frankly. Do you? No. No. And they worship them, but if the bugs came upon them, then they get in trouble. Like, for instance, uh, at the lice. They had the big bugs first and then the little bugs. And those lice, when the lice hit the people, they said, this is the finger of God. One in their ears, their eyes, and different things. And once they got bugs, they could no longer operate their sanctuaries. They had all kinds of sanctuaries, but the sanctuaries were shut down because they were defiled. So God shut down all their sanctuaries of the bugs. Can you see what God was doing? They also worshipped the sun. They had these false mountains. that, that They worshipped the sun during the day and at night. Their theology of the dead was a worship of the sun because they thought that the sun went up during the day over the Nile and then it went down at night through the river Styx. S-T-Y-X. That's where that rock group came from way back. Sticks. Sticks and stones may break my bones. And, uh, and so they worshipped that. Both day and night, they had reasons to worship the sun. But what, God, what did God do there? He turned out the lights. The big lights, the little lights, every light. The, it was so dark, it says in the Bible, that what could happen? You could feel it. How many of you ever had it that dark? It was a palpable darkness. Very, very dark. So, uh, I mean, Amon Ra was the name that the, the Pharaoh was named after this. I mean, the sun god. And when he turned the lights out, it was just like, wait a minute, you're God? Turn the lights back on. And he couldn't do it. So God was just totally obliterating their system of belief. Their system of belief. In 1909, an ancient papyrus written by the Egyptian named Ipuwer. Ipuwer. Is that how we say it? Ipuwer. I don't know if I'd name my kid that. Good morning, Ipuwer. Good morning, Mom. How are you doing, Ipuwer? I'm doing quite poor. So there was an Egyptian named Ipuwer who was found in Egypt, and he was pretty poor. <laughs> anyway, so they found it, and it describes all these upheavals in Egypt. Starvation, drought, escape of slaves with the wealth of the Egyptians, death through the land, and it appears to be an eyewitness account of the effect of the Exodus plagues. So they find this account, and they realize that this really happened. So instead of Egypt with the false gods, number six, and the mountains or pyramids, those false mountains, if you will, where did God want to lead his people and why? Well, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, and then 2 through 6 and verse 12. Let's read it together. 3 verse 1. Now I want to hear you because this helps me know you're awake. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Whoa! Did you notice something about this text? He says, I want to lead. He led the flock, Midian did or Moses did, the priest of Midian, or (laughs) Moses, the flock of Jethro, the priest of Midian, he led the flock back to the back of the desert to Horeb, the mountain of who? God's mountain. So you got Egypt, which is the false god's mountain, and now you have Sinai, which is God's mountain, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Fascinating. Verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look at this burning bush, God called to him. Isn't that interesting? If he wouldn't have turned aside, God wouldn't have called to him. God puts these things here and he says, I want to see if I can get their attention. And then he calls to him. From the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Remember the first sanctuary? What did God do to Adam and Eve? He called to them. Now here's the second sanctuary of the scriptures. And he's calling to them, right? Right? Then he said, do you, 
do, do not draw near this place. Take off your sandals of your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Does that sound familiar to the first uh, sanctuary experience? Adam and Eve were afraid of God. They were hiding. You got some parallels here, don't you? God calls out to them. He wants to have this sanctuary experience. Verse 12. And so he said, I will certainly be what? With you, this shall be a sign to you, I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on what? This mountain. So this Mount Horeb was the mountain of God. It was actually a sanctuary. This was the sanctuary where Moses worshipped during those 40 years he's taking care of the sheep. That was the sanctuary. Yeah. That's a very good question. But maybe you will see an answer as we go on. I think you will. So what God was going to do was to lead them from the false mountains of Egypt to the true mountain of God. This was the picture that was given. All right. Now let's look at an interesting parallel. Who was it that appeared to Moses in the burning bush? Who do you think that was? It was Jesus. Remember Exodus 3, verse 14 says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. When he said, who are you, Lord? And what did Jesus say of himself? Jesus said, most assuredly, before Abraham was, I am. Eight times Jesus says that. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the water. I am. I am. I am. Right? So, this was why Acts chapter 7, verse 38 says that, he led them all the way through the Exodus, the angel that redeemed them, the messenger of the covenant, it says in Genesis. 8, 12, I already mentioned, he said, I am the light of the world. How did God lead them to his mountain? Well, step by step, very carefully, you might say. Let's read this text together. Exodus thirteen twenty one and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a what? Pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So this was the picture that was given. So the light of fire by day and the darkness uh, of the cloud by uh, the darkness of the cloud by day to protect them from the sun and the light by night. Now the mixed multitude who would go out to the edges of the camp, they would also be killed because there was this protection by day and by night by God. And uh, it was interesting to see um, that protective act. Now let's look at something fascinating. Well, this was all just preamble. Now let's look at this interesting study. What is the mountain of God? Back to your question. Exodus 15, 13, and 17. Exodus 15, by the way, is a chapter you should really study if you want to understand the sanctuary. Thou hast led in thy steadfast love the people whom thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them by thy strength to thy holy abode. So for some reason, God took Sinai and said, this is my holy abode. Thou will bring them in and plant them on thy own mountain, the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thy abode, the sanctuary, Lord, which thy hands have established. So look in this text. The mountain of God is called what here? The sanctuary or the tabernacle of God. Isn't that interesting? So, you know, we have this picture here of the sanctuary that was set up, but really the sanctuary that God was leading them to was... Mount Zion. It was called his holy habitation, or Mount Sinai. The mountain of inheritance. Your dwelling place. Your dwelling. Your sanctuary. A prototype of the sanctuary. Well, actually, the prototype was in in Genesis, but now we're looking at the second one. Now, notice this. Who was it that was really leading them? 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same supernatural food. All drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank of that supernatural rock which followed them. And that rock was... Okay, so now there's a rock. And there's drink and there's food. So that rock was who? Jesus. Jesus the rock. And uh, Israel was baptized into the sea. And into the cloud, and they drank of that rock, and the rock followed them, and the rock is identified as Christ. 
So all there. Now, here's the point. The sanctuary parallels the mountain. The sanctuary and the mountain are exactly the same. Remember our sanctuary we looked at before? Starts out with the brazen altar, right? Now, in this model I'm going to be giving away, that brazen altar, you'll get a good look at it when you see that model. It's had a ramp on the side, of course, so you'd walk up and you put all the articles there. But on the brazen altar, number one, was where the sacrifice of burnt offering and the sin offerings and all those were there. Then also we had the labor which represented, of course, ultimately baptism. When a priest was being consecrated at 30 years old, they would take water out of the labor, and then they would consecrate that person, baptize them. Jesus got baptized at what age? 30 years old. So he was following kind of this sanctuary uh, model or motif there. The golden lamps, of course, where we have uh, the uh, lampstands. And then the bread and drink, I had the other day. I went up into into my room, and my kids had gotten out all the felts, and they had the sanctuary out, the sanctuary felts, and they had them all set up on the floor. And I said, "Well, what is this?" I asked my daughter. She goes, "Oh, that's our dollhouse." I said, "Oh, really? And what do your dolls do in that house?" Well, she goes, "Well, this is the kitchen, and that's where they eat, and these are their lamps. This is their lamp." And then, you know, and I said, well, I better have another sanctuary lesson with her. She's two and a half, you know. I said, well, actually, this is not your dolly's, but, you know, but, you know, it's nice that your dolly wants to be there because God wants us to ultimately be in his house. But uh, the way you've been acting, I don't know if you should enter in quite yet. So anyway, um, so, but, but, but there she is. He's trying to put it together, right? And then you had the altar of incense, number five. And then finally, you had the ark where was ensconced the law of God. And then the presence of God was over that. And the uh, Shekinah glory. Now look, when they left Egypt, and they left, they uh, they left, and they had that celebration where they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorpost, and they called that the Passover. The Passover was sacrificed where in the sanctuary, right there. But ultimately, it was passed. It was first sacrificed where in Egypt. This reminded them of that, right? Later on, when some people rebelled. Like the Korah, Dathan, and Abihu, they took their centers and they beat them on the side of this so they'd always remember that rebellion went along with sin. So there was the Passover. Then the next thing, the labor experience, the next thing that it memorialized was baptism. Well, what did they do? They were baptized by going through the Red Sea. Can you see the parallel? They were baptized by going through the Red Sea. That was the, the way they did that. Then the golden lamps, they came to that bush that was burning, the same place where the bush was burning, where Moses was there at the base. Remember, remember that? He said, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. That was the burning bush. They went back to where Moses had seen the light. And that's always a good policy. If you get lost, go back to where you first saw the light. So he goes back to this light right there. And there's that parallel. And uh, so the bush was right at the base of the mountain. Now, what happened when they got there, Exodus chapter 24, notice it. You've got to look this text up. See these with your own little meaty eyeballs. Exodus chapter 24. Oh, I'm sorry, your eyeballs are probably not that meaty. Well, you know, if you didn't have any meat in your eyeballs, they probably wouldn't even work, would they? They're mostly fluid. You don't have much meat. If you have too much meat in your eyeballs, uh, I can't see. see me afterwards because you couldn't. Exodus 24. Exodus 24. What does it say here in verse... 11, Exodus 24, 11. But of the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank. So what, when, when this whole idea in Exodus 24 is where Moses was going to go up the mountain to receive the covenant of the Ten Commandments. So here they are and they, they are, uh, they're going up to drink and eat with him. That's just like you would see in the sanctuary, eating and drinking with God next to the lampstand. Can you see that? So then what happens? There's a stone altar that's set up. Moses prays at that stone altar. He wants to make sure everything's okay before he goes up. Verse 4, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose up early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Why did he do the 12 pillars? Because he wanted to represent them. He represented them in intercessory prayer. He was going to represent them as he went up the mountain. So we have this altar, stone altar, if you will, of 
incense and intercessory prayer right there on the mountain. And then he goes up into the very presence of the Lord. And notice what it says, verse 24, chapter 24, verse 9 through 12. Let's look at 9 through 12. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders, and they saw the God of Israel, and there under his feet it was, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. It was like the very heavens in its clarity, but on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. And then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you the tablets of stone. Literally, there's an article missing there. The tablets of the stone. What stone? The stone they were standing on, that sapphire stone. And the law and the commandment, for I have written that you may teach them. So he says, look, I want to give you this stone, this sapphire stone, this blue stone. As you come up into the very presence of my glory. What was right up here? What was right up here? The blue stone was right there under the mercy seat, right? The very presence of God, the angels and his presence were right there. Can you see how the mountain is covering all these things? Well, it says right there, it's blue sapphire in appearance. In Exodus chapter 1 and verse 28, it also says, uh, it talks about the same thing. Well, let's look at Exodus, I mean, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. Did I say Exodus? Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. <clears throat> you see this several places. And why do you know it's blue? Well, I'll come to that in a minute. I'm starting, starting to get there right now. Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28. Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28, or 26. Let's start there. And above the firmament, over the hedge, was the likeness of a throne. Now, this was God's mobile throne here in Ezekiel, his Air Force One. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's got his little Boeing uh, 777, <clears throat> so to speak. So, above the firmament, over the heads of the likeness of the throne, in the appearance as a, what's it say next? Appearance as a, what kind of stone? Sapphire stone. So, there's the answer. And so, it's the likeness, at least. And the likeness of the throne was the likeness, and the appearance of it was a man high above it. Who was that man? Yes, yeah, it's, it's Jesus. It's on his mobile throne. Verse 28. Like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So, here's this picture. Man, isn't this fascinating? So really, you have, long before the little models I'm giving you, these little bottles that were given away, you have the mountain sanctuary. And everything is memorialized there. Let's keep going. And you have the tablets of the stone. So he cuts that stone out, God writes on it, and he brings it back down the mountain. And, of course, it was put into the ark. And Deuteronomy 4, verse 13, calls it the ten what? The ten commandments. Ten commandments written with God's own hand. And uh, put in the ark from the very presence of... Of the Lord. How many can see this interesting parallel? Fascinating. Scintillating. This basically opens up the scriptures for you. Because as you look through the scriptures now, guess what you're going to see? You're going to understand all kinds of passages. So let me just give one idea and I'll come back to it in our last lecture. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you need to have these kind of attitudes. Eight of them. The last one is, blessed are you when men shall revile you and say all manner of evil against you, false and for my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad. You know if you could pass that one, you're ready to go up the mountain. Yes or no? That's the last test, the acid test. And then he says, if you have that, you are the light of the world, burning bush. You are the salt of the world. Every single sacrifice was seasoned with salt. Then he says... You have heard it said, but I say to you, Ten Commandments then comes next. Be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Then he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you, You say this, but not this. All the distortions are taken care of. And then he says, A wise man build his house upon the... What? What kind of rock? Probably the blue stone. Can you see how the Sermon on the Mount is built on the same paradigm? Can you see it? How many of you just followed what I did? Almost. Boom! 
Every single passage of Scripture, then, you start to understand in terms of sanctuary imagery. You get to Exodus chapter 14. I'll come back to it in the next lecture. You have these people there in Exodus chapter, or Revelation chapter 14. Did I say Exodus 14? Revelation chapter 14. They're on the top of the mountain. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They're on the top of the mountain. They have entered in. God's desire has always been that you go to the top of the mountain. You see, in Exodus 19 and 20, they said, don't come near the mountain. But in Deuteronomy 4 and 5, he says, why didn't you come up the mountain? So his desire was that they came up the mountain. Now, who did go up the mountain? Moses did. And God wants us to have Moses' experience. Right? Right? He, 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 by the way, had the health message. He was going up and down, down the mountain all the time. He had like the Stairmaster really going on, you know what I mean? He's up and down. <clears throat> all right. So let's keep going here ourselves. God was enthroned above the stone in both places, both in the mountain sanctuary and then in the portable sanctuary. See, he wanted everybody to memorialize this mountain experience. He wanted them to, he wanted that to be memorialized. You know, You've heard the expression, Muhammad does not come to the mountain, but the mountain comes to Muhammad. Well, of course, it's a lie. But uh, Jesus literally wanted to take this mountain experience and make it portable. So that they could always remember that experience. Tablets of the stone, literally there. So let's look at that blue stone a little bit more. Like I showed you in Ezekiel 1, it's really a picture uh, of God's law pictured on his throne. And here's an early picture from, from uh, one of the earliest pictures of, what they, of Yahweh. And they, uh, this was called Yahweh in throne. And notice what he's on. What is that? A wheel. Isn't that interesting? And in Ezekiel, he's pictured on a what? Wheel within a wheel within a wheel. So that was his cosmic throne. So the blue stone is really his throne. In other words, the law of God is his what? Throne. Don't mess with the throne. Right? It's the the law of God, the Constitution. It's eternal. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 and 9 says what? He's anointed him with the oil of gladness more than all his brethren because he hated lawlessness... And loved what? Righteousness. Isn't that interesting? So, uh, Jesus, Jesus loved that, that, uh, the law uh, of God and he lived it. Now, one thing I should point out here, look in your Bibles here, um, in Chronicles. I don't have this up here for some reason. I don't know why that this oversight has come in. And then I have to confess it to you here. But uh, let's see if I can find this text that I'm looking for. First Chronicles and verse... Um, it's either First Chronicles or Second Chronicles... Okay, First Chronicles. Must not be Second Chronicles since I went there. Chapter twenty-eight, verse eighteen. Here it's talking about the pattern of the temple, and it talks about the ark. It says it should be made by. Refined gold by weight of the altar of incense and for the construction of the, what does it say next? The chariot that is the what? Gold cherubim that spread their wings and overshadowed the ark of the what? Covenant of the Lord. So what's the ark called here in this text? The chariot. So were they right? Yes, they were just memorializing this text. And Ezekiel sees this chariot of the Lord, Air Force One, and right there on top of the chariot is God's law, that blue stone. How many of you can see how powerful this study would be in in building confidence in the law of God? You see that? 
Now it's going to get more, even more powerful as you go along. David said, One thing have I desired, Psalm 27, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord forever. He wanted to be there. Why was it blue, someone just asked? Numbers. Numbers chapter 15, verse 37 through 40. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers. Someone read that when they have it. Numbers chapter 15, verse 37 through 40. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a for fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, at which ye use to go a whoring, that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. So why was it blue? Why was it the sapphire blue? To help them do what? Remember the law of God, true blue. Isn't that great? Now let's try this on for size in the New Testament. The blue stone, then, we've seen, is the rock of moral certainty and authority. The blue stone in the sanctuary is the source of living water, because there's another thing I haven't told you. Always the water would flow out from the sanctuary. You know, Moses would go, and he went to the mountain, and he struck the what? And that water flowed out. And that rock that followed them was who? Christ, it was in type teaching that Christ was the rock. The blue stone is the source of eternal salvation. All of these things we see by just studying that stone. And so who is that stone? None other than Jesus Christ. So basically, we have to get the benefits of the rock. Get a piece of the rock. There used to be this ad, you know. Get a piece of the rock. This is truly the rock. He, Jesus, is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of truth without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. That rock was Christ. So what came from the rock? He made them ride on the high places of the earth. He made them suck honey out of the rock. How many of you have ever seen a rock like this? this? This is rocket science right here. Honey out of the rock. Oil out of the rock. How many of you have ever seen a rock that had that come out of it? This is definitely talking about who? A person, if you will. Courage from the herd, milk from the flock, with the fat of lambs and rams and herds of Bashan and goats and the finest of the wheat, and also the blood of the grape, and you, sh- uh, you drank wine. All of these things were associated with following the rock. Following the rock. So what else came from the sanctuary? I already showed you this. It was water, Ezekiel 47. You can read the whole chapter. But water would flow forth from the rock. Why am I doing all this? Because I'm building up to something here. Jesus on the last day of the feast, what's he say? Last day of the feast. Remember I said the Gospel of John was built all around the sanctuary. Jesus stood up and proclaimed, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and what? Drink. He who believes on me, as the scripture have said, out of this, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. He's saying, look, you can, you can, you can drink from me, and then you'll have water to come out of you as well. So what he's taking is all the imagery that we just learned back there, and he's saying, I am personifying that. And when he died on the cross, what came out of his side when they put the sword there? Blood and Water, John nineteen thirty four. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once came out what? The blood of the grape, if you will, the blood that we pointed to back there, that Deuteronomy text, and water. You see how Jesus was typified in all these things? Very powerfully. Now at the end of time, what happens? God's end time people, Revelation chapter 7, verse 16 and 17. They shall hunger, what's it say? No more Neither thirst anymore, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. What's that sound like? That's the exodus. When he led them out, what happened? There was a cloud by day. There was a fire by night. There was water that came. Why? Because they were following the lamb wherever he went. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne and will shepherd them. 
And he will guide them to the what? Streams of living water. Can you see how the last book of the Bible harkens back to the Sinai sanctuary? How many can see that? Wow. So I, I taught my kids a song. Come, let us go to the mountain. Come, let us go up to the Lord. Come, let us go to the mountain. Come, let us go up to the Lord. And He will teach us His ways. And we shall walk in His paths. Come, let us go to the mountain. Come, let us go up to the Lord. Come, let us go to the mountain. Come, let us go up to the Lord. Isn't that a great song? It's right there in the prophets. They sing that. They're always singing, Come, let's go to the mountain. And the people are always saying, Oh no, I can't go up the mountain. You go up for me. God's going to have a people ultimately that want to go up the mountain. They're going to go up the mountain. Don't you believe that? Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Which reminds me of the last story for this lecture, and then we'll take a little break before we come back to the ins and outs of the atonement, which is a great topic. Let's look here. There was a woman in Luke chapter 8, verse 43 and 44, who had a flow of blood for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone. And by the way, when, when you had that situation, you couldn't come to the temple, you couldn't come to the sanctuary because you were defiled to come into the sanctuary. So she couldn't think about 12 years, she couldn't go to church. Because you're defiled. They had to go to the priest and show themselves to the priest before they could come back. Think about having to do that. And here, here she uh, finally has this flow of blood. But she sees Jesus. And Jesus is not one that's going to be trying to have a way to keep her out. But trying to find a way to get her in. And she finally senses that this is somebody who loves not only men but also women. The women always follow him around. They always follow him everywhere. They, they subsidize everything he did. I mean, he was nice to them. Right? Am I, am I right or am I wrong? Yeah. So he, 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 he senses this. He comes up behind him and touches, what's it say? The friends of his garment. Now, what was on the friends of the garments? The blue, right at the bottom, like it says. And we read it in Numbers chapter 15. So she touches this emblem of what? The rock. And what comes from the rock? healing and sustenance and everything. She touches that, and as she touches it, what immediately happens? A blood of flow ceases. You know, God's law is not there to try and hurt us. It's there to help us. Jesus is not someone who's out to get us. He's out to get us in. He wants each of us to be saved. He wants us to go to the mountain. You believe it's true? And that's what we learned from the Exodus experience. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.